Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Scripture reading for this week is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is part of a collection within the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. It is called a Song of Ascents, or as the King James says, a Song of Degrees. The Psalms of Ascents. So the Psalms of Ascents kind of center around this idea of going up to Jerusalem and particularly seem to center on the New Jerusalem and the coming Davidic King. And this particular Psalm isn't entirely clear in its exhaustive theme, but the idea that is that we are particularly looking at today is verse 1. And that is the fact that God is the one who has to do things, or else it is pointless to do them. That also then means in verse 2 that we should take our creaturely rest, enjoy the gift of sleep that Yahweh gives to us, and not feel that we have to just keep on working and working and working, because Yahweh is the one who must build anyway. The word reads, A Song of Degrees for Solomon. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Although children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in a hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Good morning again. Please turn to me with Matthew 16. Like last week, this is a different kind of sermon, where we're centered in on a few words, but are reading the whole passage from which they come. But unlike last week, this week's not in any danger of becoming a theological lecture. It's actually quite more application-driven. And if you're familiar at all with Puritan sermons, it's going to be a lot like that. We're going to explain the four words that is our text. And we're going to spend almost as much time applying them, thinking through all of the implications that those four words have for how we live. The whole text reads Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man, am. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? 
And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Father, we ask that you would be working among us today. That as your spirit is always with us, that he would be applying this truth to our hearts. That he'd be helping us to think through your word. And that ultimately, through what we do today, what we've already done in the singing, what we will continue to do with the preaching and more singing, that Christ would be building his church. Lord, we readily confess that it is not our work, and there's nothing we can do to make this happen. And so we humbly ask for your blessing and for you to do your work among us today. Guide us into the truth, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. If you've ever built with children's building blocks or observed any children playing with building blocks, you may have observed a couple of different philosophies and strategies. Some from the start probably just start building and intentionally try to do things completely wrong or maybe just don't know what actually would make a good building. Some are very meticulous during the whole process to try to build a good foundation and then build on it well. And then there are people like me that when it comes to building blocks, like to build a good foundation and then play with gravity. Intentionally build on that good foundation in ways that are unstable and to see unstable it can be without the whole thing toppling over. But then it, it does matter. How we build upon the foundation ends up depending and determining a lot about what condition the building ultimately ends up being, how stable it truly is. A good foundation is a necessary but not sufficient condition for a stable structure. So it's significant when we start to look at our text today, where Jesus promises, I will build my church. He doesn't just choose a foundation and leave it at that. But he chooses the foundation and then says, at, uh, upon that rock, I will build my church. So that's what we look at today, the fact that Christ has promised and will do 
the building of his own church. So the explanation is simple enough. We read verse six, verse 18 again. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, as I mentioned two weeks ago, kind of leaving the most controversial part of this text until next week, but will Lord willing be our last week looking at this text? So for now, it's only significant that Christ has chosen the rock, that he's chosen the foundation, not as significant for our purposes today as to what that foundation is. But we know the foundation is sure because Christ built it and chose it. We have a little bit of a problem if that was the end. Just as it would be problematic if God created the world like a time watch, like a, a, a watchmaker, set into motion and left it, so too we would have a problem if Christ set a foundation and then left his church to its own devices. Because we are all terrible builders. We all stumble and fall. We all get our own pride even coming into the way and end up wouldn't end up building it the right and proper way. But here is the beautiful promise, I will build. It is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that one that Peter just confessed to be that powerful, that chosen, the divine chosen one, anointed by the Spirit, and always been God the Son. He is building his church. It's not Peter that's building the church, not any of the apostles. It's not in our modern day, the Pope, church planters or pastors. It's not influential church leaders. It's not programs. Many of these things can be helpful, but at the end of the day, Christ alone builds his church. He is supreme, and his supremacy is on display in this text and the fact that he makes the promise to build his church. I, I, I don't want to be too persnickety about language. I understand there, there can be a, a right use of the language of building. In fact, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 3. He shows Jesus as supreme in 1 Corinthians 3 by pointing out that he is the foundation, but then he talks about himself and other Christian ministers building upon that foundation. And he's not in contradiction to the way the image is being used in Matthew 16. So we, if we turn to Matthew, uh, sorry, to 1 Corinthians 3, and we read verses 5 to 11, we find this. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. 
I have planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. So neither, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The images are, are used differently. The foundation is Jesus Christ that presents him as central and supreme. But then Paul is building the church upon that foundation. But in Matthew 16, the supremacy of Christ is presented in this very powerful way that it is he who builds the church. It's not dependent upon any man other than the man, Christ Jesus. The Messiah, the son of the living God. He says, I will build my church. Building and church probably convey to us an image that might end up being a little bit confusing. We tend to find a, a lot of similarity, even synonymity, towards the idea of the building we're in and the church itself. It's a Sunday school rhyme. Here is the church, here is the steeple, open it up, and here's all the people. Where suddenly we've switched around some of the things that are going on. So we can and need to be a little bit careful that we understand that's not what the disciples or any early reader of Matthew's gospel would have had in mind. They wouldn't have been tempted to confuse building and church, quite frankly, they didn't have a building. Acts 2.46 says that they met from house to house. Philemon 1 and 2 also mentions the reality of Paul greeting Philemon as well as the church in his house. They then have a better understanding not to conflate church and building, but ultimately to see the church as what it is, an assembly, a gathering of believers. One lexicon of Greek explains the word ekklesia this way, a congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. Congregation in many contexts, ecclesia may be readily rendered as a gathering of believers or group of those who trust in Christ. Christ is building his church. And it would be appropriate to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.9, as we've already read, ye are God's building. 
or as we read in First Peter last year, we all as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. The church, the gathering of believers being built up by Jesus, that's what he's promising. That though the messianic community is small now, he will build it. And he's almost certainly referring to the church universal. It's also called the invisible church. The gathering or assembly of all believers from all time and all places. Whether Africans in the 4th century or Europeans in the 15th. Indeed, whether Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist, Pentecostal, and yes, even some Catholics despite being in a church that doesn't teach the gospel clearly, have still come to believe in it. But the invisible church is made visible through an imperfect expression in local churches. So the application of what he's doing to build the universal church certainly applies as well to the individual expressions, such as the Fostoria Baptist Church. But as we are sitting here, trying to, to milk out everything that he's saying when he makes this promise to build the church, we should notice one other important thing. He doesn't call it the church. He calls it his church. The universal church and every local expression of it belongs to Christ and no one else. Now, just with the idea of building a church, we don't want to be too snobbery about the language that's used. Images can be used variably, but in a very real sense, we have to say that this is not our church. This is the church to which we belong. This is ultimately his church. And that means that the church and its services exist for him by his enabling, by his power, and for him and not for us. But maybe even more significantly, this church is Christ's because we belong to Christ. We started off today but the song, I believe, belong to Jesus. And if we truly have come to believe in him, if we truly have cast aside our sin, turned from it, and turned to faith in Jesus, then we do believe that we belong to him. And the whole church then, the gathering of believers, belongs to him as his treasured possession, as his spiritual house, being built up by him. Such that the church does not belong to us. We belong to him, and in belonging to him, we belong to it. All right, this seems a good time to pause. To simply say, if you have not accepted Jesus, if you're going out on your own life, 
not belonging to him, not having him as a treasure and not being his treasure possession. You don't have to leave today with that being your position. We have all sinned. We have all made it so that we are cut off from God. But he, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, he has died for us. He rose again, showing that the victory over sin, death, the devil, and hell is done. He won. He took our punishment so that we don't have to bear it. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto God. If you haven't done that, if you haven't come to faith in Jesus, talk to me as you leave today. Let me explain more of this beautiful gospel we proclaim and how it gives hope for eternal life. How it allows for you to be God's treasured possession, able to worship him forever. So that's the text. Christ promises, I will build my church. And I'd like us to tease out some implications. We have today seven, that end up kind of working in an unintentional six plus one pattern. The first six have a lot to do with casting aside our pride. The first implication is what we really said underneath the idea of my church, that it's Christ's church. The church and its worship, we as a body that gathers together, is for the glory of Christ. We are not our own. We are God's. So we are to glorify God in our bodies, which are his. I imagine that there will be times in which we don't like the services. There will be times in which I won't like the songs, where you won't like the songs. There might be times in which the preacher just talks over your head. Sorry about that. But whether we like the songs or not, whether we like the things that are happening within the worship service or not, isn't actually terribly important. Because it's not for us. It's for God. It's for Christ. So let us together cast aside the pride that thinks that our desires and priorities must be met. That our thoughts about what the service should look like need to be met. Let us cast aside the pride of consumerism. Whereas the consumer, we want to be pleased. And instead come to worship Christ and live our life so that he is pleased. And be singing so that he is pleased with the posture of our heart towards him. Humble dependence. The second implication is that we must cast aside the pride of boasting. There's no boasting in our salvation. Because it is not by works, but by faith. 
so too there is no boasting in the Christian life or Christian ministry. So at the end of the day, we've never been the ones to do the ministry. We are vessels only, instruments in the Redeemer's hand. We are used by him. If we have ever done anything that is praiseworthy, it was not truly us, but Christ working in us. What do we have that we have not received? And if we have received it, why do we boast as if we have not received it? Christ builds his church. We are the tools in his hand. So let's cast aside any pride of boasting, except that we boast in our weakness so that God's power may shine through us. As his grace in building is sufficient within our weaknesses. The third implication kind of goes on the flip side of this. Pride is a double-sided coin. It's not only about arrogance and boasting, but about insecurity, about anxiety when things aren't going well. King Saul was a proud king, but his pride came from his insecurity and fear that his authority would disappear, that he would no longer have what he wanted. So if we're to cast aside pride because it's ultimately not about us because Christ is building his church, we must also cast aside the pride of insecurity. As there, we are thinking too much that what we do matters and changes. Many would know the name George Whitfield. And many would know the name George Whitfield because of how powerfully God used him to spark revival in the middle of his ministry. But it's interesting that it is the middle of his ministry. As best as all accounts dictate, he was the same preacher before the revival and after as he was during it. But for some reason, the Spirit of God was not active in that regard, as active, I should say, to bring about changes at the same rate as what happened in the middle of his ministry. Many today, myself today, could be inclined then to start thinking, is something wrong? If we were put in Whitfield's shoes, we'd start immediately wondering, well, what changed? What did I start doing differently? But Whitfield didn't. He knew that the revival over which he, uh, that he saw under his ministry was never his work. So when the revival slowed, when the fruit stopped coming in at the same pace, when Christ slowed down his building of the church, he was content to continue on, doing the same things, continuing to be faithful, regardless of how well Christ blessed him. 
Christ will build the church in the speed that he chooses, sometimes stronger than others. It's our task to remain faithful to what he has done. It's our task to let him build the church. Which does lead into the fourth implication. Christ builds his church, so we need to step out of the way. Too often in a situation like George Whitfield's, our first response would be to then start thinking, what do we do differently in order to bring that type of results back again? If we get too creative in how we try to do that, we end up leaving aside what Christ has already ordained as the means that he has chosen to build his Those who follow in the revival tradition of Whitfield seem to have greatly fallen prey to this temptation. Instead of being content to let God do the work, they started trying to figure out how to build a revival up rather than to call it down. Started thinking about methods that could guarantee conversions. started trying to build the church on their own terms. This type of thinking can still exist in church growth programs and movements. It can still exist in seeker-sensitive churches. It can still exist in thinking that there's a certain thing that can be done to bring people in rather than a church faithfully living in light of the faithful preaching of the word. But a church that Christ doesn't build isn't worth having. We must cast aside the pride of thinking we can improve on Christ's means of building the church. We must instead lean in to what he has given to us in the scripture for how his church is to be administered for his glory. As Ian Murray explains, speaking of the first great awakening, God has appointed the means of prayer and preaching for the spread of the gospel, and that these are the great means in the use of which he requires the church to be faithful. There are no greater means which may be employed at special times to secure supposedly greater results. It is therefore the Spirit of God who makes the same means more effective at some seasons than at others. But that's also key too. The fifth implication is if Christ is the builder of the church, we ought to ask him to build it. If in the comparisons that are being made between revival and revivalism, revivals come about because in a special work of the Spirit of God that quickens the pace where Christ decides then to speed the pace of the building, and it should be our prerogative to ask Christ to build his church. 
our our activities of seeing what we can do should happen like with what Corabel asked for about a month ago. Asking for prayer, for revival in Fostoria, for people to come to churches and be joined to them, having been convinced of their sins and committing to Christ. If Christ is the one who builds his church, and he is, then we must be regularly on our knees, casting aside the pride that thinks that we can act without this fervent prayer, and ask him to build the church, to do a great work, to send the Spirit. I appreciate all of the prayer warriors we have in this church. And there are many. I will say the thing that has encouraged me the most is when people say, or specifically do, and pray for the preaching and teaching of the word, that as I or Tom or anyone else is in a position of teaching preaching, that the spirit would be at work. Or even further before that, when Tom or I or whoever is going to teach, if we're studying for it, that the spirit would be at work in our hearts, teaching us so that we can then teach you. Christ builds his church. So let's pray that he continues that he gives us this special work within the place that we are in, within this church, within this city. The sixth and final aspect of pride that needs to be cast aside goes back to this idea that Christ builds his church and we are the tools in his hand. It's good to be tools in his hand, but if a tool is unavailable, Christ can pick up another. None of us are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so that means none of us are irreplaceable. Christ can use other tools. I think there's a, a real danger that we forget that it is Jesus that is the Messiah not in a direct way, but in the practical way we live out our life. We can practically forget that Christ is the one who builds the church, but instead start living as if everything depended upon us. Ignoring opportunities for Sabbath rest and just pouring ourselves out into exhaustion because ultimately we have thought that everything depends upon us. I think we can do that as individual members of the church, and I think we could do that as a church gathered together corporately. And I think we must cast aside the pride that thinks that it all depends upon us, when in reality, Christ builds his church. Let's try not to work ourselves beyond limits, Switch against our instincts in this regard. 
like to quote from two wise pastors who talk about this instinct we have and ultimately the prideful danger of it. The natural instinct is explained well by Pastor David Murray when he writes, if I don't do the work, who will? Although Christ has promised to build his church, who's doing the night shift? Of course, he's bantering with himself and with us, making it clear that the one who does the night shift is still Christ. He's still working to build his church perfectly, regardless of who is able to do the work. Pastor Kevin DeYoung highlights the arrogance and pride when he writes, Because we regard ourselves so highly, we overestimate our importance. We assume if I don't do this, no one will. Everything depends on me. But the truth is, you're only indispensable until you say no. You are unique. Your gifts are important. People love you. But you're not irreplaceable. I cannot confirm that if everyone here today, I, that every member of the church started living in light of our creaturely limits, I can't confirm that every single ministry would survive. But I can guarantee that Christ will still build his church. I can guarantee that he would rather have us worshiping him than to use his own words in Luke 10, distracted with much service. Let us cast aside the pride of thinking Christ needs us and be willing to say no if that is what is the wisest thing for us to do in light of family drama, in light of our own limitations, in light of sickness or weakness in light of whatever thing compels us to think that we shouldn't do a particular thing. These are six facets of pride that we must cast aside. But there is one final application, and it's not about pride at all, or at least not directly. It's about rejoicing in the fact that Christ is building his church, and it's an implication that Christ himself gives for the fact that he builds it. Let's read verse 18 again. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This line, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, is a very beautiful implication. It's beautiful in one light because it connects back to Genesis twenty-two seventeen, where the seed of Abraham would possess the gates of his enemies. So Christ has possessed the gates of his enemies. 
It's also beautiful because in warfare, gates are not offensive. You don't strike a military effort using your gates out in front. Gates are used for two purposes, either to keep people in or to keep people out. If you are keeping people in, you're imprisoning them. Certainly there are some dark things in life, like death, sin, the devil, that imprisons those who are without Christ. It's also used in defense to keep people out. And whichever one it's used here, it shows the complete victory of Christ's church, which he himself builds. Also interesting, the word gates of hell, the Greek is the word Hades, which could refer to hell or could just refer to death. Indeed, in the translation and idea of gates of Hades refers within the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It almost, well, it always refers to death. That's why we kind of expanded when we're talking last week about this. We're talking about sin, death, the devil, and hell. We're talking about all of those forces of darkness where those gates of those forces will not prevail against Christ's church. But that's only true because Christ builds it. That's our great hope, is that Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has conquered sin, death, the devil, and hell, since he builds his church, the church he builds has complete victory. So I can tell you right now, I have not and will not conquer sin, death, the devil, and hell. And neither will you. Only Christ could. Only Christ did. And so, when he builds his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But as was true with the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic house, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Or as Martin Luther penned well, and a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Let's rejoice in that today. That Christ will build his church. That he is on our side. And he will win the battle. Father, I thank you that it does not depend upon us. I thank you that we are but tools in your hand. I ask that you would give us grace and comfort. And that as we rejoice in the fact that Christ builds his church, we would cast aside all the pride that clings so easily to us and be faithful to your name to your intentions and aims of this world.
Oh, Father, thank you. Guide us as we go from here so we continue to worship in our, in our conversations after the closing prayer. I ask in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>